Isaiah 12. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful and glorious day. We thank you for the cool weather. We thank you for new life and uh, in our little village here. And we thank you for old friends that we haven't seen for a long time. And now, Lord, we just uh, want to uh, pray that you would open up your word to us as Adam speaks. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Sing and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everybody. Surprised that I have hair? And clothes. That's good. That's a positive. <laughs> All right. So uh, are they here yet? Do we have babies yet? No? No. All right. Okay. Clarification. Some of you didn't get that. Some of you didn't get the joke. And we have a clarification on the joke uh, right, right here. <laughs> The title is Gandhi Before the Fast. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's see if we can get back, because I'm pretty sure if we read far enough in the Old Testament law, we'll see serious violation to three or four of them there. So, All right. So we're continuing our series through Exodus. You can join me in Exodus 22 if you would. When we started this series, do you remember what month it was by any chance? It was January. Yeah, good for you. It was January. Uh, And when we started the series, it was stories. It was baby Moses in a basket. It was the burning bush. It was uh, Pharaoh and the plagues, uh, Passover, the Red Sea, Mount Sinai with thunder and lightning. And then all of a sudden, we hit Exodus chapter 20, and it's a chapter where a lot of people get bogged down. A lot of chapters here that are filled with law. And so when people hit this section of scripture, sometimes they'll slow down or speed up, right? Skim through it uh, or feel just uh, stopping altogether when they thought, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. And then they hit uh, Exodus 22. See, you guys tried to sneak in late, but we just, that is the cutest uh, person in the room there. I'm talking about the baby. And then, uh, okay, so we hit Exodus chapter 20, and we wonder, okay, is God saying something to me in this passage? Is there meaning in this text? Uh, We are Christians, and so what are we doing reading the Old Testament law? So you might ask this, um, and this is a good time for us to remember that even Paul himself, and Paul was the great 
missionary to Gentiles. He was the lover of grace, the one who explained this to us. And this is Paul in 2 Timothy, and he's telling us that the entire Bible is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. And this wasn't just an academic exercise for Paul. He's not saying, look, you should really read the Old Testament so that you can get a full picture of redemptive history and all that kind of stuff. It's not just an academic exercise. Romans 7.22, Paul says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And he's echoing, I think, the psalmist. We see this all the way through Psalm 119, many other sections of scripture. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I love your law. He's not just saying, I really, I know that I ought to read your law. He's not saying, I've been a good boy and I had my devotion in Leviticus uh, this morning. But he's saying, I delight in the law of God. I love your law. There's a legacy in scripture and also throughout church history of people loving the study of the law. Loving and savoring the study of the law. Now, in order to do that, we've got to understand how to read it. And that's really the problem. It's, it's hard to enjoy studying something when we don't understand what we're studying. Uh, I remember that feeling in Algebra 1 class in ninth grade many years ago. This was not enjoyable because I did not understand. Um, and especially when we're talking about the Bible, it's hard to enjoy the study of particular sections if we don't understand how is this relevant to me? These laws and all of this stuff, it, it just it, there's 4,000 years separation between when they were written and me. How is it relevant to my day today? And when we don't see those connections, then we can either skim it or skip it altogether. So here's the first thing to know. What I'd like to do here this morning is spend the first half of the sermon just reminding all of us why we're even doing this series. Why not just end the sermon series uh, at Mount Sinai, say who, oh, and then Jesus came and everything you know, worked out. Why do we go slowly as Christians through this section of Scripture? Why do we even do this? I'd like to spend the first half of the sermon today just reminding us why. Then the second half of the sermon, we're going to look at a, few, uh, at a few laws here in Exodus 22. But first of all, we have to remember that Christians are studying the law from the perspective of the new covenant. A new arrangement for interacting with God. And that perspective means that none of the Old Testament law is in force. None of the Old Testament law is in force. Martin Luther said it really well. He said, the law of Moses is no longer binding on us because it was given only to the people of Israel. And that's important. It's not an overstatement. Romans 6.14, you are not under the law, but under grace. Romans 7.6, we are released from the law. Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law. And not just the Old Testament that that tells us that, but even the Old Testament itself predicts that it would end. Jeremiah wrote, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's where we are here in Scripture now, on that day, on that period of time, when God took them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt and gave them the law at Mount Sinai. Jeremiah, much later, is saying, I'm going to do this. We're going to have a do-over. We're going to have a new covenant. Something new is coming that will replace what we see happening here in Exodus. So we have a new arrangement with God that frees us from the law. If that's true, then in what respect is it profitable for teaching? 
if we believe that each word of this book is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, if we believe that all of this is profitable for teaching, if we believe that we might be like David or Paul who said, I love this stuff. I, I, I know you, you may have stopped your year through the Bible when you got here, but I love this section of the Bible. So how is that possible if it is no longer in force to us? Here I think Luther is helpful to us again. Martin Luther said that Moses is our teacher, not our lawgiver. Moses is our teacher, not our lawgiver. In other words, there is a ton to learn from Moses, a lot to learn from these Old Testament laws, even though they are not in force. Quick example. Let's say you're a farmer, you're a Christian. You are not required to let poor people glean on your property after harvest. That was an Old Testament law. Uh, Don't go back to pick up dropped fruit Give it a once over when you're doing it and you leave the rest for the poor. It's a great law, but it is not binding on Christian farmers. But that farmer is not released from caring for the poor. And the church is not released from figuring out effective ways to make sure that nobody goes to bed hungry. See, there was a system here. It wasn't just an individual person. Uh, you know, who, who, who said, okay, I'm going to let some poor people here. But it was a whole system in this town and this whole country where poor people didn't have to go to bed hungry because they knew that there'd be somebody leaving stuff on their field that they could go grab and give to their kids that night. See, the Old Testament law shows us what God is like and the kind of people that he wants us to be, the kind of society that he wants us to build together uh, we don't have to celebrate the year of Jubilee in, in Leviticus, but we better figure out something to help poor families among us get a fresh start or they are going to be condemned to generational poverty. So we see what God is like, what kind of people God wants us to be. We saw this last week in property laws. It was actually funny before church. People asked me, you know, so what are you going to be preaching on today? And I said property law in the Old Testament. And I'm sure that a few of you thought, hmm, I wonder if Denny's is open. (laughs) But wasn't it interesting? Wasn't it interesting as you look at Old Testament poverty, poverty law, we begin to see that, look, God not only wants his people to respect private property, which is interesting, but he also wants restored relationships. And that was the most interesting thing. I think that comes out of the Old Testament property law. See, our system uh, of, uh, of our prison system basically tells somebody, if you've done something bad, you need to go away by yourself for kind of a really long time and think about this. And we're hoping that after you're finished thinking about this for a few years, that you'll come out and not do it again. But the system that God creates, first of all, insists on immediate restitution. And we saw this last week, two to five times type restitution. Uh, And so you have immediate restitution where, let's say you stole my candy bar and we figure this out and then all of a sudden you've got to give me three candy bars. So I'm sitting here as a victim with three candy bars. And what happens is that I'm all of a sudden like, okay, okay, that's that's cool. We're good. You know, so the perpetrator is like, all right, we good. Sorry about that. We good. It's three candy bars. And I'm sitting there with three candy bars like, yeah, okay. You want a candy bar? Like, like it's good for the relationship. So it's immediate restitution. It's also expensive so that the victim or so that the perpetrator realizes this is not a good plan. You know, if I keep doing this, uh, then I'm going to have less and less. Very interesting system 
for restoring relationships throughout the community. God wants the perpetrator and the victim to be friends. Now, that's interesting to learn that about God. That tells us something very interesting about God. He doesn't just restore property to rightful owners, but he restores people to a dignified place in society. And there are implications for parents, for community leaders. We shouldn't just punish crime. We need an effective mechanism for restoring property and restoring criminals, restoring sinners. So we study the Old Testament law for more than just abstract principles. The laws themselves are so creative, so thought-provoking. And I think this is why David says in Psalm 119, he says, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. He saw glory in these laws. He saw implications in these laws. We don't just strip mine the Old Testament for theological ideas. It doesn't apply to me, so what does this tell me about God? It's more than that. The laws themselves confront us and inspire us to be holy and to be compassionate and to be worshipful people. And the laws do this even though they are not binding. If you loan money, you're not required to follow the Old Testament law of forgiving that debt every seven years. Um, But you better get creative about how to loan money in a way that is not oppressive. Wouldn't it be nice if founders of our country if our uh, members of Congress thought through the implications of these Old Testament money lending laws. God's laws for money lenders are not binding, but they are fascinating as we think about the authoritative implications of the Holy Spirit working in us saying, look at this, look at this, look at what these laws show us about God and the kind of society that he wants us to build. We saw something similar a few weeks ago in slavery laws. A lot of people are like, oh, slavery. How can you talk about slavery? But what we saw there was a voluntary six-year arrangement that helped poor people get back on their feet. So basically what happens is the poor person goes to another guy in town. He says, look, can I come work for you for six years? I'll be your slave. I'm going to do anything that you ask me to do for six years. Let me eat at your kitchen table for six years, and I will do anything that you ask me to do for six years. And After those six years... All I'm asking is that you give me a cow, give me some seeds and that kind of a thing, and I'll be on my way. So this person, this person down on his luck, moves into a stable, healthy, wealthy family for six years. How much you want to bet that most of those guys learned how to manage a home during those six years? It's an incredibly restorative process. And that law is not binding on us. But the mechanism is cool. And as the Holy Spirit helps us to understand that law, revealing to us God and the God, the author of all of these ideas and 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 helping us to understand what it looked like in that sort of a context. uh, Then we begin to think through implications for our own lives. And that's where God's authority comes in, because all of this is still on top of us as an authority. The law might not, not be binding. But as we read this and as the Holy Spirit moves inside our hearts, all of a sudden we begin to hear an authoritative conviction that I've got to live like this. I might not have to every 50 years allow all property to go back to the original owners. We're not bound by that particular law, but we better get creative as individuals and as a society about how to take care of people among us, how to give people a fresh start from time to time. We are free in Christ, but we are not free to ignore the poor. 
And it makes sense to study how God took care of the poor 4,000 years ago as we start to think through our own processes. You see, God's idea for taking care of the poor, I'm sorry, I think we can all agree, is way more effective than the gathering in or than our what would Jesus do van. These are wonderful things, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't be doing them anymore, but why don't churches in the greater Sacramento area get serious about the poor by using our kitchen tables to develop long-term redemptive relationships with needy people who need to be reparented. They need a fresh start. That would be interesting if we thought like that. And that's an authoritative message. That's God speaking to us saying, look, here's, here, this is really important to me. In fact, later in Exodus chapter 22, he says, and I paraphrase, take care of widows because if you don't, I'm going to kill you. There's irony for you. All right? Your wife's going to be a widow if you don't take care of widows. Take care of orphans or I'm going to kill you. And your child is going to be an orphan. This is important to me. Do this, says God. So we are released from the laws themselves, but we are not released from the implications. And it makes sense to think through how this worked. Also helps us to see God's purpose for these laws. It's not just that God likes bossing people around. Do this, do that. Let's see if they can do this for a thousand years. Oh, I've proved that they can't. Let's send Christ. That's not how it worked. What was the purpose of all of these laws? And if we read them individually or without any kind of cultural help, uh, then some of them are just bizarre. We're going to see a very bizarre one here later on this morning. So it helps us to see what they're trying to do. What, what are the purpose of the laws? And I would argue here, and this is a complex answer, so there's one part to that question. But one purpose, one very important purpose of the law is to create a good place for God's people to live. You remember Eden, place where it all started, a paradise that had been carved out of the chaos. And the Bible ends with this prophecy about the new heavens and the new earth where evil can harm us no more. The walls are just ridiculously thick there. Uh, perhaps they will be real walls, but we understand the symbolism there as well, that we will be protected from ever. Uh, we will be protected forever from anything that will hurt us in the new heavens and the new earth. God loves to make good, beautiful, safe places for us. And you remember the first thing that King David did when he replaced Saul in 2 Samuel chapter 8. It's one of the very first things that we hear. It's like a commentary on David. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. I love that verse. You could be tempted to read over it kind of quickly, but I think it's so important because these people had had a disastrous few hundred years. You had the period of the judges where everybody did what was right in his own eyes. You have people being cut into pieces and war and famine and all this stuff. And then finally Samuel and then a completely goofy king. And then all of a sudden here's King David. And the first thing that we hear of him is David administered justice and equity to all his people. That's the first comment on his reign. He was a good king because he made sure that the law worked how it was supposed to. Which meant if you were a widow or if you were poor... In his country, you didn't have to worry. You know, if you're a dad or a mom and in his country and your house or your property or whatever uh, that was assigned hundreds of years earlier by Joshua. So you're sitting there and you can see Edom out your window. All right. You can you can see it. You don't have to worry because David's king and he's got you protected. The borders are secure. 
so you can relax. You don't always have to, what was that noise in the middle of the night? You can relax. He creates a safe and beautiful place by making sure that the law works, by making sure that the borders are secure. And not just King David and a bunch of other good leaders, but the ultimate leader in Scripture, the Messiah, also makes a beautiful place for people to live. We hear about this in Jeremiah 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Sounds an awful lot like David. Verse 6, in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So here we see the ultimate king, the ultimate Messiah, who executes justice and righteousness. That has to do with law. And the result of this, we are told, is that Israel will dwell securely, which is the result of the law, the result of a good king who secures the borders and makes sure that the law works, makes sure that the court system works. As New Testament believers were tempted to to hate the law or to be bored by the law or to skim through this section of the Bible. But the entire Bible is living and active, profitable for teaching. And it was given by a heavenly father who wants his people to live in safety in a good place. So this is why we're reading this section of scripture and going through it rather slowly Uh, We're at about the halfway point here in the sermon this morning. I'd like to transition now to looking at a few of these laws, uh, probably a little more than half done. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 16. First law would be verses 16 and 17. And again, this is one of those things you read it at first and you're like, what? Like, what does this have to do with me? Why am we even reading this? But it has to do with um, uh, looking at the original cultural context. This is 4,000 years ago, and uh, these laws came into that culture. So let's read it and then make sure that we understand it, and then we'll play with some of the implications. Verse 16, if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. So the first thing we need to see here is that this does not have to do with rape. A lot of times, if you're looking through the internet about evidence for God being evil or things like this, then they'll quote a passage like this to say that that, uh, the Bible is okay with rape. Uh, But here you have this man seducing the virgin. This is not a case of rape. Rape laws were very different. If, if, if a man raped a woman in the Old Testament times, he was supposed to be put to death. Let me read this to you in Deuteronomy 22. If in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. So to be clear here, rape deserves the death penalty according to the Old Testament law. You do not do this one, Right? And it goes on, it's, and it explains it. Not all the laws are explained, but this one is explained. You shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense, punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor, because he met her in the open country, and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. So the law that we're looking at here in Exodus 22 is not about rape. He seduces her. They somehow interact in such a way that he convinces her 
to have sexual relations. This is two young people having premarital sex, so we can use all kinds of religious words if we want to. But basically, the situation here is two young people that have premarital sex. In this case, he has to marry her and give the bride price. Now, the bride price is the same thing as a dowry, and this is why this uh, section is confusing because we don't do this in America. A bride price is the same thing as a dowry. Uh, the young man's family, either the young man or the young man's dad, had to pay the dowry for a girl when he wanted to marry her. And a dowry is a bunch of money that is given to the girl. And the girl's father keeps this money for her. It was financial security for her in case the husband dies young before he has sons that can take care of her. Or in case he turns out to be a bum. He leaves her or he's lazy or whatever. It creates financial security for her. And the father is the one who hangs on to this. Now, the bride price throughout the Old Testament is 50 shekels. And that was true not just in... uh, in the Old Testament, but in other parts of the world. Bride price was 50 shekels, which is a lot of money. Uh, it's about five years of wages. People made 10 shekels a year uh, during harvest time, really, really tough work. People would get about a shekel for that amount of work, and at other times of the year, they'd get a little bit less. So people made about 10 shekels a year. So basically, if you wanted to get married in the Old Testament, You've got to give five years worth of wages. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars if we convert it to today's money. Hundreds of thousands of dollars to the woman's dad for her in case you kick off early and can't provide for her or you turn out to be a bum and she's got to go home. It's interesting. This required young men to be pretty responsible before they got married. And this created security for ladies if their husbands turned out to be jerks. You would not be living on the street if the society follows this system. A lady doesn't end up on the street. She's got protection. So, if two young people have premarital sex, they have to get married. Unless there's an exception clause. It's a really cool exception clause. And all the fathers in the rooms are like, yeah. There's an exception clause, and that is that this girl's father can say, uh, no. (laughs) And as a father of teenage daughters, I can think of a few reasons why he might say no. Father is responsible for making sure that his daughter does not marry an idiot. Okay, so you can't just, yeah, (laughs) hallelujah. A father's responsible for making sure that his daughter doesn't marry an idiot. So you can't usurp having to ask the father by having premarital sex and forcing the issue. Well, we've already had relations where it's like we're married, so sorry, there's nothing you can do about it. I get to marry her. No, the father still gets the last say because the father is usually wiser than his daughter. She has been seduced by this fool who has violated the law, and he gets to say whether or not you're going to get married or not. But this is, it gets even cooler. Let's say that he says, no, you still got to give me the dowry. And if you can't afford it, you can sell yourself into slavery for six years and pay me in six years. That's fine too. So what do we learn here from this passage? Now it's weird, right? You read through it the first time. You're like, that's weird. But as we start to look at the way that God has designed this, it's very interesting First of all, God created sex for marriage. It should not happen outside marriage. Also, God wants 
healthy marriages. And God gives us parents or parent figures to help us avoid bad marriages. And God wants responsible young husbands to qualify to get married. It's not enough to seduce her. It's not enough to just be cool and good looking and, hey, let's get married. You've got to qualify. And it's a pretty high bar. And we also learn that God takes care of young women, both with good parents or parent figures, but also with the legal system that protects her from poverty in case the marriage goes badly. And sometimes they do. But right from the very beginning, we've got an arrangement here so that she's going to be okay if something goes wrong with her husband. So this law, combined with so many others, create a safe place for young women. Again, the purpose of the law is not just that God likes to boss people around and prove that we're sinners and we need Jesus. The purpose of the law here is to create a safe and beautiful, good place for people to live. The kind of community that God set up in the Old Testament law made it safe for young ladies. So you've got worthy men who are coming with 300 grand in their pocket, talking to your dad, saying, what do you think about this? Can I marry your daughter? And honestly, the way that it normally happened is you avoid all the romance altogether. And when you are even before puberty, your parents say, how about our kids get married? Now you can really focus on your Algebra 1 class and you don't have to worry about (laughs) anything else because you're going to be marrying her when you get old enough. (laughs) Okay. Let's look at three more quick laws. And these next three go together. And all of them are different perversions of worship. These all relate to pure worship. Uh, God wants to live right in the middle of us. And this is very important. Remember, the purpose of the law is that God would create a safe and good place for his people to live. And the way God does that is by living in the middle of us. So in Eden, Adam and Eve walking with him in the cool of the day. We see these tabernacle laws that are about to come here soon where God basically says, let's go camping and I'll put my tent right in the middle of all of yours. And we see Christ hanging out with his disciples, living with them. We see the Holy Spirit sent to live inside us. We see in eternity this new heavens and new earth. And, and Jesus says, you know, I, I'm gonna, I'll be back in a little while. I'm going to go build a huge house where we all going to live together. You know, it'll have lots of rooms and we'll all get to live in the same house together. And I'm going to go do that for a little while. So I'll be right back. (laughs) God created us to live with him. He created us to function and to thrive and to have joy and have peace because we are living in a place where God is right in the middle of it. That's where our security comes from. Isaiah chapter 10 says, for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Uh, Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Assyrians did. You see, the people, as the Egyptians did, the people were safe because God lived there. And because God lives there, the borders are secure. And this is, so this is where our security comes from. It's also where our joy comes from. Isaiah 12, 6, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. That is a foundational, fundamental source of where our joy comes from is because God lives here. I live close to God, therefore I'm joyful. Shout and sing for joy. 
God made us to thrive by living close to him. And that assumes pure worship. True religion is the central building block of a good society. So here we have three laws to protect pure worship. Exodus 22, verse 18, the first one says, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Okay, so these are laws punishable by death. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Now, what is a sorceress? A sorceress is somebody who claims to have supernatural knowledge or power, which was used to influence the gods or cast magic spells. I'm reading a dictionary, uh, Old Testament dictionary definition there. Sorceress is one who claimed supernatural knowledge or power, which was used to influence the gods or to cast magic spells. So now why is this wrong? Why is this wrong? And the answer is because God is sovereign over our lives. He tells us everything that he wants us to know, and he leads our lives exactly how he wants to. And the point of sorcery is to know stuff that we don't know and to control situations that we don't have any control of. Sorcery, same thing as witchcraft, the occult, Ouija boards, tarot cards, astrology, all these kinds of things are designed to reach into the spiritual realm to understand and control our world. And it is a rejection of God's revelation and God's sovereignty. And therefore, it is wrong. It's, it's obviously wrong because it's a different religion and it violates others of these laws. But I'm explaining why there is this kind of law. And it's because sorcery reaches in to a realm that we have no business being in. Not to mention the fact that the Bible makes it very clear that that realm is not just fun little ghosts or apparitions of this or that or family members now dead that we can talk to in the spiritual realm, but it is demonic. So there's a lot of danger when a sorceress is amongst us. Therefore, the punishment, according to the Old Testament law, is that she should not be permitted to live. Verse 19, and this is the awkward one here. And so when I was first going through the text this morning, I was thinking, how am I going to preach this? Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Now, that is evil for obvious reasons. But let me also say that Canaanite religions represented their gods with animals. They had these little idol figurines that were usually animals. And it was common in those Canaanite religions for sex with animals to happen in religious um, ceremonies in order to become one with a God, in order to become closer to a God. Now, I, I realize that that you have sort of a visceral reaction to that, and it's disgusting, but um, it's also so sad. It's so sad. People have been made with a longing to be close to God. And that has to be the worst, most demonic idea that anyone has ever had for how to be close to God. Uh, God has made it possible for us to live in his midst and to interact with him, to pray to him, to come into his presence. He says so many things to us. He wants to be close to us, and he has put that longing in our hearts. And yet Satan comes along, takes that longing, and warps it into something like sex with animals, which is just a terrible thing. So it seems like a random law. You think, what is going on here? Why does that appear there? But I think this has to do centrally with um, pure worship. It has to do with a worship issue. And finally, verse 20, whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. So we're concluding this thing here on pure worship reiterating in verse 20 what we see in the Ten Commandments. All of these laws relate to pure worship. 
If we do not worship God accurately, our lives are in danger. And we live in a culture that doesn't really like that word accurately, so I'm using it on purpose. People like to say, oh, this is how I like to worship God, you know. Um, but that's uh, not a biblical approach to God. What we need is an accurate way of worshiping God. Otherwise, our lives are in danger. We're in danger because we're exposed to an environment that doesn't have God's mit- God, God in the midst of us. And there are all kinds of protection problems that happen there, deception problems that happen there. Um, but when God's people worship him, And when he is in our midst, and because he is in our midst, we have real provision and protection. 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So be careful to worship God accurately, not just however you feel, however you like or whatever, but looking at scripture and asking, how does God want to be worshiped? He is the one who sets the terms for interacting with him. So let's study his terms. There are great blessings for worshiping God in spirit and in truth, and there is a great danger for making making it up as we go. Hebrews 12, 28, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's New Testament. So let's close here. I think God would like us to have solid, healthy families. And so we have plenty of laws about what this needs to look look like and what to do when things go wrong in families. God also wants pure worship. He wants to dwell in the midst of us, and he shows us how to do this. He gives us the building blocks of a good society, family, religion. And this law is designed by a good and loving Heavenly Father. The law is designed for our good designed to create a safe, good society where people can live in peace and enjoy. And so we see this in Eden. We see this in the Old Testament law. We see this in places like this, in a church. And eventually we will see this in eternity. So I'll close with this from Isaiah 65. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Let's close. God in heaven, we thank you for giving us your word and we are admitting here that a lot of your word is very hard to understand. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit and through the gifts of preaching and teaching that you would help us to understand your word and to study your word and to delight in your word in our inner beings. And I pray that you would change us and make us into the people, the gathered people that you would have us be. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.